This is the Bird Hugger Podcast with Katherine Greenleaf, the podcast for people who love birds. Welcome to the Bird Hugger Podcast. I'm Katherine Greenleaf, and I'm so glad to be with you. I'm on board for a full 30 minutes of talking all things birds and restoring native habitat. What happens when a burnt-out college professor living in New England decides to become a wildlife rescuer and rehabilitator? Find out on Bird Hugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Katherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years, and hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis for birds. Hello there, everybody. Well, we're in the middle of another heat wave. I sure hope it rains soon. My plants could certainly use it. I think we've got a great show for you today. Today, we'll be talking with Matthew Shepard, the Director of Outreach and Education at the Xerces Society. We'll be discussing the Society's very popular book, 100 Plants to Feed the Bees. Okay, and now I'd like to welcome Matthew to the show. Matthew, how are you? Doing very well today. Thank you for having me here. Yes, I'm so glad you could join us. You're on the show today because you have this wonderful book at the Xerces Society where you work called 100 Plants to Feed the Bees. Could you first of all maybe tell our listeners something about the Xerces Society, when it was formed, and how it got started? Yeah, the Xerces Society was launched in 1971. So that means that last year was our 50th anniversary. It was founded by Robert Michael Pyle, the butterfly enthusiast, lepidopterist, and now very well-known writer. And he, at the time, was becoming more concerned and more aware of apparent losses of butterflies. And he realized that there really needed to be an organization that was dedicated to raising awareness about the importance of butterflies and protecting them. And so that's how the Xerxes Society came about. And the inspiration for our name is the Xerxes Blue Butterfly, which is one of the first, if not the first, butterfly known to go extinct in North America because of human activity. And it used to live on the, the sand dunes and the ocean front habitats of the San Francisco Peninsula. And then obviously as San Francisco spread, you know, as the Sunset District was built and other neighborhoods expanded into those areas, the Xerxes Blue disappeared. Okay. And can you tell us about yourself? How did you come to work at the Xerxes Society? Sure. I've actually been at Xerxes Society for many years now. It was 1999 when I first met Melody Mackie Allen, who at the time was the executive director of Xerxes Society. And it was a chance that I, I ended up working here. I was new in the country, having married an American and moved to Oregon and was looking for work in conservation, which is what I'd been doing for a decade or so. And I had a couple of job interviews. And then after one of the job interviews, I didn't get the job. And someone said, hey, you should talk to Melody. She would be a great person to network. And so I just arranged to have coffee with her one morning. And as we were talking, we discovered we had overlaps. You know, she had a project working on butterflies in Africa, and she'd been trying to build contact with this project in Africa and ridiculous coincidence. I'd actually worked in Kenya 
and knew the people running this project that she was trying to connect with. So I was like, oh, well, I know them. I actually had another project that was working with golf courses to promote conservation of bees in particular on golf courses. And when I was working in Britain, where I'm from originally, I had worked on habitat on golf courses. And so she just said, oh, my goodness, you should come and work for me. And I did. And I've been here ever since. That's wonderful. Now, can you tell us, you know, since this book is a big part of the Bring Back the Pollinators Garden campaign that you're running with the Xerces Society, this book, 100 Plants to Feed the Bees, could you talk about this campaign, Bring Back the Pollinators? Yeah, Bring Back the Pollinators is a campaign that we launched more than a decade, maybe nearly 15 years ago now. As an organization, the Xerces Society had become really well established and we were working to protect bees and other pollinators in a lot of landscapes, but with a major focus on farmlands and working lands. And we were doing a lot of work with agency staff and others to promote habitat in those areas. And we realized that we had a gap and we were also getting an increasing number of people contacting us and saying, hey, what can I do? I've, I've got a garden, I've got a community garden, our local park. You know, they were wanting to do things in their neighborhoods. And so that's what led us to launch the Bring Back the Pollinators campaign. And based on four principles that can be adapted to any location, which are provide the pollinator-friendly flowers, you know, the bees and other pollinators, they need something to eat. Make sure you have the nesting sites for the bees and the egg-laying sites for butterflies. Avoid pesticides, particularly insecticides, because we know that they are very bad for insects. And then the fourth principle of, of share the word, because once we had people doing things, often they're they're enthusiastic about what they're working on and that they want more people in their neighborhood to do it. And so sharing the word can be as simple as having your kids make a sign for you to put out to say, this is a pollinator garden or, you know, social media or just talking to your neighbors. And sometimes if you do put a sign out frequently in a lot of neighborhoods, it's really obvious which is the wildlife garden or the pollinator garden because it has an abundance of flowers and it has things growing in it instead of just a neatly manicured lawn and some borders with with shrubs and wood chips and so on. And so often you you can have complaints from people. So you put a sign up and then it helps explain why your garden looks like it does. Right. That sign is very important to keep the neighbors from becoming, how can I put this, Resentful. Yeah, yeah, you like, have this image of them like waving their pitchforks, you know? <laughs> <laughs> torches and pitchforks, exactly. <laughs> yeah, hopefully not torches. But I mean, through our Bee City USA initiative, the last few years, there's been a push for Nomo May that you and your listeners hopefully have come across, which is something that actually began in Britain with a nonprofit there called Plant Life. And, and the idea is very simple. It's like, you don't mow your lawn. You let your lawn grow and have some flowers in it. And we actually heard from people who saying, like, I let my lawn grow. And then while I was out, one of my neighbors came in and mowed it. Oh, no. <laughs> Which is just crazy. So we know that there is some serious resistance to a less than manicured lawn. So, yeah, having a sign and trying to communicate what you're doing and why is a really important thing. It's odd, isn't it? It's so much less work when you just let the lawn go and don't mow. I mean, we're talking about hours of mowing and 
going to the gas station to get gasoline to run the lawnmower and the exhaust from the lawnmower itself. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. so labor intensive and uh, so polluting, you know, when one could be sitting in a lawn chair drinking iced tea. I know. I mean, that's one thing that I'm, I regularly tell people. It's like when you put all this work in, you're not just creating somewhere that's going to be fabulous for insects. You're going to create a space that's so beautiful for you. It's really important to take time to relax and enjoy what you've created and the wildlife that you bring into it. Now, the book mentions Dr. Edith Patch. Could you maybe talk about her role in helping people see the vital connection between plants and pollinators? Edith Patches, uh, she's just one of those incredible people. She was a professor of entomology at a time when maybe women weren't professors, but certainly not of entomology, a career, a, a topic that was largely considered to be the realm of men. I don't know all the details of her life, but she spent about 35 years at the University of Maine, where she started as an entomology lecturer, professor, and subsequently became the chair of that department. And then eventually she actually became the first woman who was president of the Entomological Society of America. And she was hugely influential within entomology. And a significant part of what we know her for now is she was an early proponent of what we now call beneficial insects. She recognized even a century ago, that pesticides, insecticides were having a serious impact on insects far beyond the insects that were considered to be the pests and the target of the chemicals. And so she started working to try and raise awareness of the impacts of insecticides and promoting beneficial insects, you know, beetles and lady beetles and surfeit flies, you know, and, and parasitoid wasps and all the other insects that are out there that are eating or laying eggs in or killing off the few species that are considered to be pests. And so she became known through her writing for trying to encourage alternatives to pesticides. And now, I mean, many people think that she may have been one of the major inspirations for Rachel Carson, who we all know so well through Silent Spring. If you were to look at what Edith Patch was doing, her work was a precursor to much of what Rachel Carson did. Amazing. In fact, as a school child in grade school, she actually wrote an essay about monarch butterflies and won a prize for it. <laughs> so even back as a, a young child, she was had a serious interest in insects. So she was a pioneer in more than one respect, one for yeah. women's, women's scientists, but also for mm-hmm. helping people see this vital connection between plants and pollinators. Yeah, very much so. Mm-hmm. It's one of those people that you can say, talk about influence, but back then, We didn't have the kind of celebrity status that we do now and such ease of communications. You know, now you just you put something on social media and boom, it reaches a million people in no time at all. Back then, it took much more time and effort for her ideas to spread. And so it was a slower, but she was profoundly influential for sure. Right. That's where that term voices in the wilderness comes from. (laughs) (laughs) It's like this quiet, timid voice in the wilderness. I don't know if I would call Edith Patch quiet or timid, but (laughs) maybe in the wilderness. (laughs) Right, right. 
So I was hoping to talk about some particular plants that are mentioned in the book. Could we talk a moment about buttonbush? Oh, yeah, no, sure. I mean, buttonbush is, for people who know buttonbush, I mean, obviously it's a plant largely of the eastern states. So where I am on the west coast, we don't have buttonbush, which is a shame because just in itself, it's an astonishingly beautiful plant to have in your garden. And it's also one that does support a lot of bumblebees and butterflies and all sorts of other native bees will, will come to it. It's really rich in nectar. It's also one thing that's really important when we're thinking about native plants is not just are they nectar rich to support bees and butterflies and, and other nectar drinkers, but also the role that native plants have in supporting butterfly and moth caterpillars because often this is something that people can forget about when they're creating a garden they're thinking about oh beautiful flowers and nectar to feed these beautiful insects but you need to make sure they have somewhere where they can lay their eggs and that's why with our bring back the pollinators campaign egg laying sites and nesting sites is the second principle because when you're designing a garden managing a wildlife garden you want to be able to support the entire life cycle of, of the insects and we know from the work of Doug Tallamy in particular that native shrubs and trees support hugely more abundance and diversity of butterfly and moth caterpillars than non-native ones. So, that, I mean, the button brush, for example, is a caterpillar host plant for some of our sphinx moths and also royal walnut moth, which are all big, spectacular moths, even if we don't see them so much because we're not out at night. I have to laugh, you know, we're talking about buttonbush because we have a row of buttonbush along a stream at the back of our property. And I could be in the middle of my garden outside working. And I know they're in bloom because all these bumblebees are flying over my head straight to this, all to the <laughs> same spot. And if I go out yeah, to the street and look around where the stream is, there are dozens and dozens of bumblebees clustered on the buttonbush because it's such a yeah. rich source of nectar for them. It's a total magnet, isn't it? And it's a total you magnet. You mentioned them growing by the stream, and that's one thing about buttonbush. It's a plant that can grow in wet conditions, which means it's great for stream banks and wetlands. It, it also can grow in shadier conditions. It can fill a gap in your garden or your, your farm or your park or wherever, where often nectar plants don't grow so well. It definitely, I mean, if you have a wet condition, if you have a rain garden, for example, or, you know, you catch your rainwater off your roof for bioswale, catch water off your roads and parking lots, buttonbush is a, it's the kind of plant that would grow in those wetter conditions. And as you said earlier, the white round blooms are just spectacular. Yeah, no, they are. It's an all round winner. It's the kind of plant that every gardener should have. Now, could we talk a moment about false indigo? It's also called lead plant. Yeah, no, this is another one. Again, it's another eastern plant. It will support all sorts of, I mean, lots of bumblebees, other species of native bees, such as leafcutters, sweat bees. Again, a great source of nectar for butterflies of all sorts and a caterpillar host plant for quite a few species of butterflies as, as well as the io moth. It is a plant you have to take a little bit of care with because in the wrong place it can spread very rapidly. And I know there are some parts where it's growing outside of its normal range 
where it's considered to be a nasty weed. So up, up here where I am in the Pacific Northwest, for example, in Washington State, it's actually identified as a problematic plant that, that people should get rid of if they find it. But it's a fairly big, bushy plant. So it's the kind of plant that if you have space for it, it's great. But if you've got a small garden, it's one that you may want to put a question mark over. Another thing about false indigo that I'll mention is that a lot of gardeners grow purple buddleia because it's so widely promoted as a, a butterfly nectar plant. Buddleia is a serious weed threat. There are some states where it's, you know, the sale of purple buddleia is banned. For me personally, when I was working in Britain, I had some sites I was managing where Buddleia was one of the biggest problem weeds. And we spent a lot of time and energy and money in trying to get rid of the Buddleia from these sites because it was just growing and smothering all the other plants. But if you do have Buddleia and you want to rip it out, false indigo is a good replacement for it. Another plant with long tapering flower heads of purple flowers and a fabulous magnet for insects. Now, Buddleia, also known as butterfly bush, correct? Yes. Right. Yeah. There is a case yeah. where marketing has gone haywire. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's also a case where it started being promoted as a good wildlife butterfly plant before we truly knew its threat. Often with garden plants, they're promoted because they're easy to propagate. They're robust. You can grow them and get them into the stores and they survive well in the garden centers and they'll establish well in the garden. And then it's only after that that often you discover there are these problems with them. Right. Now, the false indigo can grow quite tall. It can grow up to 10 feet tall, but it has very pretty purple blooms. And I imagine, you know, being as tall as it is, it'd be perfect for the back of the garden area. You know, if you're planting against yeah. a brick wall or some other type mm -hmm. of garden wall, maybe a stone wall. Yeah, no, it was its size why I, I mentioned it was good for larger gardens. If you have a smaller and folks in cities or even some of the suburbs that are coming up now where you don't have much garden space, this is a plant that may just be too big for most people to want to grow. Or, you know, you might want to have it in the, the furthest back corner where it can have a bit more space. But if you have the space and you're in the eastern half of the U.S. and then you know, up into southern Canada, it's a really good plant to have. Right. And if you're turning your front lawn like I am into a wildflower meadow, <laughs> then um, you can put this in and it will fit in quite nicely. Sure. Yeah. Now, could we uh, maybe talk about steeplebush or meadowsweet for a minute? Yeah, I mean, steeplebush or meadowsweet, it's also known as hardhack, another common name. Spirea is the genus name. And there are two or three different species within that, that genus. Some are Western, some are Eastern. There's one that has beautiful pink flowers, another one that has beautiful white flowers. So, I mean, it's one of the plants that more or less wherever you are, in the United States, you're probably going to find a species that will suit you. It is beautiful. Again, it, it can be fairly tall. I mean, I don't think it gets quite as tall as lead plant. The ones that I've seen growing around where I live, you know, six or eight feet tall are about as big as they ever get. And so you get this great big mound of green leaves and the top of each stalk has this wonderful rising spire of pink or white flowers on it. It's also it's a really robust plant and, and a bit like 
Buttonbrush, it prefers damper, but I don't think as wet sites as Buttonbrush, so it, but it'll definitely grow in damp areas. So, you know, again, around wetlands, on the sides of creeks and so on, but it will grow in drier conditions too. And it is a really strong plant. So it can be used in an area where maybe, you you know, if you've got a, a hedgerow, say, maybe you've got a bigger garden and you have some areas where you don't always have the energy to get in and weed. This is the kind of plant that you could grow there because it's a really strong growing plant and will be able to outgrow some of the weeds that you might have to deal with, like blackberries, for example. It flowers relatively early in the year. And so it's a really good for bumblebees when they're establishing their, their nests and building their nests. Right. Holy cow. You have to get out of the way when the spiria blooms because those bumblebees are just <laughs> circling in a very yeah. protective and not adversarial, but they want the spiria bushes all to themselves. <laughs> so yeah, no, um, definitely. And sometimes they'll try and chase another one off. But mostly there's enough flower head so that each bumblebee can have its own flower head. Right. And very pretty pink color, too. Very attractive. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, we see these, the steeple bush or meadowsweet or spiria in a lot of roadside ditches up here in New Hampshire. They're very, very tough plants. So could we also talk about rattlesnake master? Yeah, no, this is a fabulous plant to have around. I also love the name. I'm not quite sure where the name comes from, but I've, I've heard that it's such a prickly, spiny plant that it, even the rattlesnakes wouldn't slide through it. So just such a great name. But again, it's a beautiful plant. Unlike the other three that we've talked about, this is not really a shrub. It's much more of a perennial, a prairie plant. And it is beautiful. It has just the structure of it. Its stems and its leaves and its spines the flowers are all just a very pale color and so it's a very striking plant when you see it and it is again i mean like all these plants it's really good for a range of bees providing a nectar source it's also a great nectar source for monarch butterflies for example and and many other butterflies it is a a plant of a prairies rather than you know wetlands or forest edges there's a moth it was now a very rare moth that only its caterpillars only eat this plant. And so it's important not just for the broader ecology of our pollinator communities, but for the future, you know, for the survival of one particular moth in particular, the, the rattlesnake borer moth. Right. And again, talk about bumblebee magnet. Yeah. They just absolutely yeah, no, love it. As a society, we always encourage people to have native plants for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is that native plants typically are more robust and will grow better in, in your local growing conditions. There is some evidence to suggest for sure that native plants will support a greater diversity and abundance of butterflies and moth caterpillars, but also that it seems that native plants will support a greater diversity and abundance of bees as well, which is what we really need. Now, the Rattlesnake Master does grow very tall, grows to six feet tall, but it's mm -hmm. a lovely blue color. So it's very attractive in the garden. And I think, again, depending yeah. on how you plan out your garden when you're planting, it can be a lovely accent at the back of the border. So now as we start to wind up, could you address neonicotinoids and their effects on native plants? 
Yeah, um, neonicotinoids, known as neonics for short, are a group of insecticides that were introduced back in the 1990s. They started really being used and began to turn up when people were testing for insecticide contamination of ecosystems and such like. And they are a group of chemicals that when they're applied to a plant, they don't remain on the outside of the plant. They actually get inside the plant tissue. And so whether you apply them as a a spray on the outside or you apply them as a drench on the ground or increasingly they're being applied as a protective coating around the seed before it's planted. Um, The neonicotinoids are inside the plant. From the perspective of trying to stop your plant being chewed, I mean, that's great because the whole plant is toxic. But from the perspective of bees and butterflies and other insects drinking the nectar, it's terrible because that insecticide has made its way all the way through to the nectar and into the pollen. And so the whole plant is now toxic to everything that visits it. And for a butterfly that drinks nectar, it's not good for its nectar to be laced with an insecticide. For the caterpillars chewing the plants, really not good. For the bees drinking nectar, it's not good. And also for collecting the pollen and taking it back to their nest, when there's now the offspring of the bee in that nest, it's a little grub that's eating the nectar and pollen that it's provided, is now being exposed in the nest. So neonicotinoids as a whole have been devastating. I think that's a fair enough word. And they are now so ubiquitous because they turn up in our creeks and our lakes. They turn up in habitat around the edges of farmland. They turn up in natural areas adjacent to where they've been applied. They turn up in gardens, they turn up in parks, they turn, they, they're basically there everywhere. And so there are very few places. If, if I'm not even sure we can say that there are pesticide-free areas anymore. I think we have to be honest and say that there are no areas where we might be able to consider things to be pesticide-free. A lot of the work that we're doing at the Xerces Society and brings us back to the third principle of bring back the pollinators campaign, the one of avoiding pesticides. We're trying to minimize the risk to our pollinators and our butterflies and other insects. We're trying to find ways to enable gardeners to create gardens that they want, the plants, the beauty, the peace and quiet, the serenity that they want without resorting to pesticides. And part of that is that if you look at the patterns of insecticide use, people are often applying them not because they have a pest problem, but because they don't want to, if that makes sense. So that they're or they're applying them for what's frequently referred to as cosmetic reasons, i.e., you apply something to the plant so that it it doesn't get eaten, so that your plants don't have little holes in them. So it comes back to your plants somehow fitting that artificial image of perfection. You look at all the adverts for gardening products and most of those in the photographs, it's like nothing would live in in that landscape. And so we're, we're finding ways to discourage people from using these and to accept imperfection in the landscape and to seek out other ways for managing the the insects that they may not want. 
Yeah. See, there's another example of marketing that has lost its moral compass, which is why it is so important to know who you're buying your plants from. You want to make sure that you're not buying from some big box store or garden center that routinely sprays their plants or buys from distributors who spray their plants before delivery. Yeah, and it is difficult. I mean, we have a campaign that we we call the Be Safe Nursery Plants campaign, where we have guidance and suggestions for people, the, the kind of questions they can ask when they get to the garden center, who they need to try and talk to. Because to, a lot of this is if people are more aware and they know what's in the plant, then they can take a decision. And also it lets the garden centers and the growers know that there is a market out there for people who want plants that are safe for insects. And it is often it does come down to seeking out smaller local plant growers because there are a lot of plant growers who are growing without the use of the worst of the insecticides. There are organic growers, there are biodynamic growers, there are all sorts of alternative ways of, of growing things. But it takes some effort and it takes extra time to track down these places and, and go to visit the places that have the plants rather than just dropping by your, your local big box store or big plant center. Right. So now can you tell our listeners where can they get this book? Well, you can get it at and anywhere you, you like to buy books, you can pick it up in your brick and mortar store. You can order it online. Also, we know it's increasingly it's in a lot of libraries now because, you know, people shouldn't always have to have to spend money to get information, you know. So the book 100 Plants to Feed the Bees is widely available. If you were to go online and search for 100 Plants to Feed the You'll also find 100 Plants to Feed the Monarch, which is a, a companion book with similar information, but focused solely upon supporting the monarch butterfly. And we also have a lot of information on um, the Xerces Society website, which is xerces.org, where you'll find plant lists and other information that you can just download and print off for free. Well, you're doing wonderful work, Matthew. I just want to thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, no, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. I'd like to thank Matthew Shepard for joining us today. For more information about the book, 100 Plants to Feed the Bees and the Xerces Society, go to xerces.org. If you are enjoying this show and like what we do, please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming, you'll never miss a show, and it will help us in the ratings. Join Americans everywhere in the one-third for the birds movement. Dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife. Make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers. Plant native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat. Create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young. You will be rewarded with many hours of bird watching fun. For more information on one-third for the birds, go to the Bird Hugger page on Facebook. And that's it for today's episode, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a great week and enjoy the birds. Bye for now. Bye for now.